totalizing everyone's fan bases. Mm. So it's not little pockets of fan bases working against each other competitively. It's fan bases that are now galvanizing as one big movement. Yeah. And when you see Team UK and everyone doing it, it creates a buzz. I knew that as soon as people started seeing everybody talking about Tiny, Estelle, Chip, whoever it was, Tinchy was massive at the time. Yeah. I knew that everyone would jump on board. And so basically we did that for years and years and years. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the second season of Hot Girls. This season, we wanted to go deeper in exploring the music industry and the creative worlds that surround it. And what we really wanted to do was explore the process of breaking through and having success by talking to people who are at different stages of their career and have hit certain milestones and also the creative process of different artists. We wanted to kick off the discussion by bringing on someone who has a ton of experience and has seen not only great changes in their own career but also great changes in the careers of other people and some people you'll definitely have heard of. So this week I talked to Jasmine Dotawala. Now Jasmine, she actually started her career as a runner. She then became a presenter kind of by accident and ended up being a TV presenter for MTV News. After being a presenter for a while, she then started doing production and found herself as the head of production for MTV Base and was quite integral in the rise of artists like Tiny Temper and Estelle and Chip. That kind of period of time of UK black artists that really took off and started to see massive international growth. So we have really interesting conversations about how that process happened. And because she works at the Media Trust now, she's also involved in training new artists uh, in media and seeing the difference between the people who actually make it versus the people that are really talented but drop off. So we also talk about Beyonce's career and what it was about her and Destiny's Child that made that band bigger than the other bands that were very similar there around at the time. So there's so much information in this. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I really hope you enjoy it and welcome to season two. Ladies, listen up. You're listening to Hot Girls. With Lex on the deck. We in the mix. It's fire. Keep it going. We on fire. From London for the world. Let's go in. It started when I was younger and I had a job on the big breakfast and you had to be there every morning at 3 a.m. And really you know, whether it's early morning shoots or late night shoots or in the middle of the night versus battles between sound clash artists. I am good any time of the day. That is a rare gift. (laughs) I'm jealous. What is the book that you would most recommend to people? I have a bookshelf stacked full of books and I looked at it the other day because everyone was talking about the fact that we're on Zoom now for business and everyone's, you know, making sure that their screens are facing a bookcase. And I thought, wow, let me check my bookcase just in case I have to go and sit in front of it. And actually it's full of just mainly two sections. My bookcase has got biographies from music people. So yesterday I got a book through the post from 50 Cent with a personal note saying, (gasps) thank you for being part of my journey and my career. And I looked at it and I thought, I bet a PR woman's written that note. (laughs) And he was like, no, I wrote that. So that was amazing. I love biographies. I love people's journeys. I love hearing their version of things. And then the other half of the bookshelf is just sort of a mixture of 
not self-help, but just worldly books. Like there's a Bible and a Quran up there. I'm not Christian or Muslim. So, mm. you know, it's just, I like reading about things and people. Yeah. So I would say biographies are great. And the one that I really loved, I mean, I love all of them. But yeah. the one I remember really, really loving and raving about years ago was DMX's biography. DMX's biography was one of my faves. I've had a kind of good and not so good experiences with, I guess, like hip hop biographies. 50 Cent did a book with Robert Greene called yeah. The 50th Law. And yeah. I thought that was brilliant. And I really liked Charlemagne, the radio presenter, his book, Black Privilege, I thought was also brilliant. But then I read Gucci Man's biography and that I felt like was half him and his tone of voice and half editor tone of voice. So written. The thing is, with Humane, you know that he's, I mean, I don't know, if you love his music, then you might like his book. But I feel like if you read the book of someone, you've got to love their music because they're going to write in the same tone. And (laughs) his music doesn't speak to my soul. So I know I'd hate his book. I wouldn't buy it. (laughs) (laughs) So I really want to talk to you about your career. And obviously it's been incredible. So I want to start right at the beginning. At university and that graduation process, can you kind of remember or sort of almost go back to that? Were you dead set on TV at that point? Do you know what, Lexi? I think when I was at uni, I was just a young girl who couldn't believe I was even at uni because I grew up in Southall and Halsden, which are both places where, you know, all my peers and the girls that were older than me at school had mostly gotten pregnant early or fallen into some quite challenging situations. And so the very fact that I was at uni, even graduating, was kind of a miracle. And I just grasped everything with passion and enthusiasm and just, you know, it was that kind of attitude of pinch me, I can't believe I'm here. At uni, I remember even on graduation day, you know, my mum and dad didn't grow up owning a car. They didn't own property. They were really well educated. Um, They came from India and Kenya. But whilst they had degrees, they didn't have money. I wouldn't have even thought that I could have worked in telly. All I knew is I was doing O-levels at the time. I was the last year to do O-levels. I did my A-levels. I did my degree. And I'd been lucky enough to do them in these art subjects. So I was doing media and communications and dance and theatre. And then my teacher was like, you can do A-levels in that. And then my teacher was like, you can do a degree in that. <laughs> you keep going. Thinking, wow, I can't believe it. I'm doing a degree. Who would have thought it? So I didn't know I would work in TV. It seemed like the dream. But then also my drama teacher at school had always said to me, oh, no, you should be more realistic. People like you don't work in the media or television. So it's funny that when he first used to write to me and say, can you come in and see the school and talk at assembly about what you've achieved? I always said to the kids, this is what this teacher used to say to me in front of him because I wanted them to know that you can't let someone kill your dreams because there'll be people who aren't as single-minded and focused as I am and they will lose their dreams. So no, in answer to your question, a long-winded answer is I didn't ever imagine I would really work in TV, but I was taking every opportunity that was around me and going for it. Yeah. And so then when you started at Channel 4, were you kind of a bit rabbit in headlights? The Channel 4 thing came, so basically the way Channel 4 works as a commercial yet government broadcaster is they don't make anything in-house. All of their content is made by independent TV companies. Mm -hmm. And one of those indies was a company called Planet 24. And in the 90s, Planet 24 was legendary because it was run by Sir Bob Geldof. 
Um, it was also run by a couple of TV geniuses, one called Charlie Parsons and another called Wahid Ali. And Wahid Ali is now Lord Wahid Ali. And so these three men were incredible, visionary, future and very risky content creators and they made the big breakfast and they made a show called the word and in subsequent years they went on to create survivor and and just titles that have been created all over the world and made them basically multi-millionaires but I applied for loads and loads of work experience and this was in the good old days where you couldn't just email someone oh my god it was typed on an old school typewriter my mum's typewriter and obviously if you messed that up it was tip x and start again and all sorts of stuff and you had to take the paper out you had to print paper out if you and I used to go to the local post office and it was 10 pence a sheet so all these letters that we were sending out as students for work experience and internships we had to pay for so I was sending out letters to all sorts of independent tv companies I finally got a response back from this company called planet 24 I did work experience with with them a couple of weeks Um, and remember I come from a very BAME background where back then you were very subservient and it was like oh my god I'm in a tv company do anything that anyone asks you and do it with a smile and be very gracious Mm -hmm. So I did work experience. I got to be a runner because we didn't call them internships back then. I was a runner for about six months. And, you know, it literally meant you were running around grabbing people's lunches, making teas and coffees. We were on different shifts because the big breakfast was, of course, a breakfast show. And it was just incredible because I was a runner on that show. And then just as I'd worked my way up to being a floor assistant and helping the floor manager. And remember, this was the biggest breakfast show in the 90s. Chris (laughs) Evans and Gabby Roslin were the presenters. And just as I'd worked myself up to being a floor assistant, the same company had made the show called The Word. And The Word was a youth culture show, big music, sex, drugs, rock and roll. It was live on a Friday night on Channel 4. In fact, where the big nasty show um, usually is, that's Channel 4's go-to kind of youth media audience. And so The Word was this incredible show that the same company made. And my bosses were like, oh, because I was a dance student. And my boss used to say, oh, you know, Jazz, you and your friends are dancers, aren't you? We need some dancers for the word. Um, we'll pay you £30 for every time you dance on the word. Mm. And back, back then, dancing really did mean dancing. It wasn't kind of sexy gyrating. <laughs> it really was, you know, a few running mans and a few MC Hammer moves, and, you know, kid and play rocks and stuff. Your friends must have loved you. They were like, just going oh to the I loved it. I mean, a cab would come and pick us up yeah. and we were being paid 30 quid, which was loads of money. <laughs> and it would be with a brand new artist at the time called Snoop Doggy Dog or a brand new hip hop group called Cypress Hill or a new soul singer called the Queen of Hip Hop Soul and her name was Mary J. Blige. So we were on the podium next to these guys just doing dance routines that me and my cousin Claire would have learned at Pineapple Dance Studios. The same show, The Word, were looking for a new presenter because it had been five series in and it was the sixth year. And they basically said, um, we're looking for a new presenter. And one of the researchers back then called Andrew Newman had said to me, oh, you should go for that. And I was like, oh, no, I don't want to be a presenter. 
I never, ever wanted to be a presenter. I would take the piss out of all the auditionees that used to come in. So there were these really, really like, sexy models who would be speaking in a really, like, breathy voice. Or there'd be, like, comedians who thought they were really zany and stuff. And so as soon as they left their auditions and it was just me and the camera crew, I'd be, like, mimicking and ridiculing them all. And Andrew was like, oh, no, you should go for it. And I was like, Andrew, I don't want to be a presenter. You're like, I'm mocking them. I don't want to be there. Exactly. Exactly. You get it, you see, Lexi. <laughs> Um, it was hilarious because they really stitched me up. Like when I look back on it, they basically sent me a memo on the big breakfast and they said, after the show next week, Wednesday, can you please come up to channel four? Because we've got five finalists for the word audition presenter, but the six ones dropped out and we need to do it in pairs. And I honestly didn't think twice because the way they did it was so subtle. It was literally didn't you do drama at um, uni? Yeah, you could step in. Would you mind? And it was just as simple as that. And I really didn't clock or think anything weird. I turned up to Channel 4 on the day of the audition thinking I was stepping in. And the other five auditionees for the final were brown-skinned women. And immediately I clocked that Channel 4 had some kind of diversity box to tick and they were looking for a brown female to be the new presenter of the word. And it was wild. I mean, I still hadn't really clocked that I was part of the real audition. (laughs) About two weeks later, I get a memo in the um, email saying, after today's big breakfast show, could you go up and meet the bosses? And I thought, oh no, I'm getting fired. Because Paula Yates, who used to be married to Bob Geldof and was a famous celebrity herself every time I had to change her flowers in the morning the flowers from the day before were supposed to be in the bin and of course I wouldn't throw them in the bin because I think oh my god these amazing big expensive lilies I'm going to take them home for my mum so I was I guess officially stealing flowers from the tv company (laughs) pocketing lilies Honestly, Lexi, I was convinced I was being fired. So I thought, oh my God. And I was shitting myself because there's no way they would ask to see you. Am I allowed to say shitting? You can, yeah, you can swear. We're good. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, I go up to their office, I sit there. Wahid stands up and he's drumming his fingers as he's pacing the room. And he basically says, so Jazz, I need you to go down to your desk and clear it. And I thought, oh Oh, no. I'm being fired. And he went, I need you to leave the building. And I was like, oh my God, this is really serious. And he was like, I need you to get yourself a solicitor. And I was thinking, oh my God, they're taking me to court for nicking Paula Yates's flowers. (laughs) And he went, because you are now the new presenter of the word and I need you to get your entertainment lawyer in place. And that was the beginning of my journey into TV. I was suddenly thrust into this world of instant fame and celebrity, running around the world, being their roving reporter, interviewing these incredible music stars. And at the time, people used to say, oh, everybody else is into pop and indie music. No one wants to do those black new rapper types. And they were like, Jazz, would you mind? Imagine that. Would you mind? (laughs) I mean, you know, if you think that it was an era where we were on the crux of Oasis and Blur starting out, that's the kind of new artists that we used to have on the word. We had, you know, we had Nirvana and Kurt Cobain and, you know, massive, massive Indian rock stars. And so when this new young whippersnapper called rap and hip hop was coming up, people just didn't take it seriously. They were like, oh, and I remember distinctly one of my bosses saying, oh, this rap shit is only going to be around for a little while. It's just a passing fad. He said, but yeah, Jazz, you can go off and do it if it excites you. And so that was where it began.
I grew up around a lot of West Indian and Indian people. Mm -hmm. And the Indian people didn't really um, embrace me, you know, at school and their parents, they didn't really embrace me because they said, you're not really Indian because my parents are Persian. Mm -hmm. And so calling someone Indian when they're Persian is like calling someone African when they're West Indian. You know, they're just different parts of the world. We just both happen to have brown skin. So none of the Asian kids would hang out with me and I couldn't hang out with them after school. And the fact that my parents were divorced was a big, you know, no-no. And culturally, Mm -hmm. we were kind of outcasts for the Asian community. And it was my West Indian friends' parents that really embraced me. I mean, they didn't care where I came from. As long as when I entered and left their houses, I remembered my manners and I said, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good night, and thank you and all that stuff. That was all they needed. And so that's how I first started being culturally, I call it culturally adopted by my West Indian friends' parents because in their houses, they'd be playing soca and reggae and they'd have blues parties. And that's what I grew up on. That's how black music embraced me when nobody else would. And that's how I fell in love with it. Yeah. So nice. So then the move to MTV, did that primarily come as a presenter? Obviously, you sort of did everything when you were there, but did it start with presenting? Yeah. So at the end of the Channel 4 show, The Word, we got axed and we were axed because there were so many complaints and it was so outrageous. <laughs> we were in the papers every day. I still hold one of the records for the one of the top five most complained about sections on television. So anyway, uh, it was coming to an end and we had a clause in our contracts that said we would get paid for another year, but we couldn't work for anyone else, a competitor. So I had a year of doing nothing. So I was at Pineapple and at gym and dancing and keeping fit and stuff. And while I was out and about, I'd met um, one of my old producers, Tamsin Summers, who was working at MTV. And she basically said, oh, you know, sometimes we're looking for new people. Give me your details. So I gave her my details. Two or three months later, I got a call from her saying, hey, remember I said you were were looking for new people? Well, that's how it started. So I went in there and suddenly I became an MTV news presenter for the first three years that I was at MTV. And it was wild. I mean, I was a roving reporter for Channel 4, but MTV, as you can imagine, was a big deal in the 90s. You know, music stars and record labels revered the ground that the MTV logo was on. And we interviewed the biggest names in music, you know, there's no one that I did not interview apart from Biggie and Tupac. Um, <laughs> there's literally no one that I didn't meet and interview. You know, it was the golden years of television. The stylists, I mean, even if the news was going out at 9 a.m., Lexi, yeah. we would be in twinkly gowns and full makeup and high heels. I mean, we looked like rock stars from morning till night and we were presenting MTV News. It was just crazy days. TV and music had endless pits of money. It was wild. You know, I'd be flown to Miami or New York to do a five-minute interview with Madonna or Justin Timberlake. And my production manager, Octavia, would say stuff like, oh, you've got to be there on Tuesday. But because there's no flights on Monday, we're going to send you out the Friday before. And then we're going to bring you back the Friday after. So you're going to have to spend a whole week there, even though I'd be doing a five-minute junket interview with Madonna. I mean, the golden years. (laughs) And now you've got things like Skype and Zoom. And, and, you know, we're doing interviews over over screen. I'm telling you, I had the best years. <laughs> oh, I'm so envious. Honestly, I think I'm in media at the wrong time. <laughs> oh, we had, you know, the record labels. I can't even 
describe to you what those parties would be like. Now, when I see the younger kids, you know, doing the, you know, showcases and music events and stuff like that, I think, oh, guys, you don't know what we had. <laughs> you don't know how good we had it. We had it so good. With the, I want to ask about the parties, but with the junkets, how, um, how prepared would you be when you go into those interviews? Because it must have been like, you know, if you've got Madonna and you know you've only got your 10 minute slot with Madonna, the pressure to kind of get the interesting in bits from that must have been quite intense amongst all the fun. Yeah. You know what? There is not one interview that I've ever, ever done without exception that I have not been insanely prepared for. Mm-hmm. Because I think the thing is, when you come from an ethnic background and you're a woman, people don't expect that you will last long in the industry anyway. So mm-hmm. I've always had to debunk myths where people would go oh she's not going to last long because everyone else was somehow connected or had rich parents I'm an only child I come from a split family I can't afford to mess up Mm -hmm. so I don't have the comfort of privilege on my back so Mm -hmm. I would be insanely prepared and one thing that they used to always say at the record labels in fact still now because I do lots of media training for new pop stars for all the record labels Mm -hmm. and they all used to say we want Jasmine to do the interview because I would be prepared. I would be respectful. I would ask awkward questions in a very respectful way. We would always break news because my old boss, um, William McCoughlin, rest in peace, and Kim Luck, they both passed away now actually, but they were my biggest mentors and they would always say, whenever you do an interview, there are a hundred other journalists asking the same questions. You need to stand out and be different because all of our content used to be shared around MTV globally, whether it be Destiny's Child or Madonna or Jay-Z, my interview would have to be played out in New York and in Spain and Italy and everywhere else. So I can't ask crap questions. I would really go above and beyond to make sure that we got breaking news. Some of the answers were so great that they would regularly make the Sun and the Mirror newspapers. Mm-hmm. Like I made it my thing. I remember my boss saying, don't come back unless you've got a breaking news soundbite. Uh-huh. And so with that in the back of my subconscious all the time, I had to come back with something great. And I always made sure I did. Yeah. And you managed to maintain really good relationships with these people as well. So how, I guess, how do you ask questions that you you know might be awkward but with the right level of sensitivity it's just about thinking about how you'd like to be asked it you know it's a really easy thing to just awkwardly slam someone with a bad question and whilst that might give you five minutes of fame and notoriety now you're not going to last the long run because no one will trust you with their talent and their artists so let's say I mean I remember Robbie Williams's agent was really highly strong (laughs) and so was Justin Timberlake's at one point but they asked me not to ask questions about the people that they were dating at the time and I think Justin (laughs) and Robbie Williams was Jerry Halliwell and I thought oh my god you know and it's like Tourette's because once someone says to you you can't mention Jerry Halliwell or Britney Spears all you can hear in your head is Jerry, Britney, Jerry, Britney. And so you've got to think about how you're going to lead them towards that. Now, clearly, Robbie had a duet with Jerry. So it was obvious I was going to go down the road of talking about the duet, talking about fun times on set, what advice they gave each other. And in the end, he just led himself off to talk about their own love life. So you know, that was <laughs> right, fine. Yeah. Then with Britney and Justin, it was more of a, you, you don't ever hit them with, I want to know why you did this with that person because clearly yeah. that 
rude, offensive and unprofessional. Yeah. But if you can say something like, well, the fans have been really excited and one of the things that they've really been talking about is blah, blah, blah. What would you say to them? It's as if I'm asking a question on behalf of his fans. Yeah. So he's not going to get offended with me because he's going to go, oh, well, it's not from her. The fans are saying it, so she's got to ask. Yeah. So there's lots of little tricks of the trade that you can pop in and just be respectful about stuff. There's always respectful ways that you can ask about something. Completely. So important, I think. And the parties, were they generally thrown by the record labels? And are there any that stand out that you were like, oh, I'm very glad I was there? Oh, my God. (laughs) How many? Honestly, they were mind-blowing. Record labels had budgets for parties for every time an artist did a showcase. So if you imagine every time Usher or Beyonce or Maxwell or D'Angelo or anyone Mm -hmm. had a new album out, They would come to London as one of the key cities that they would be promoting in. There would always be a massive extravaganza. I remember going to Janet Jackson's Velvet Rope Party at the London Dungeons, and each dungeon was done up in the style of a different country. And when you went into that country, so whether it was America, you got hot dogs and donuts. When you came to Britain, you got fish and chips. I mean, it was oyster bars and free-flowing champagne and different DJs from each country. I mean, that must have been a mega expensive party. Then I remember one that Maxwell had for his album launch on the London Eye. And the London Eye was brand new. And every pod on the London Eye had a party going on with Maxwell's music streaming through, endless champagne. The same with Usher. I imagine that'd be a bit like hit and miss who you'd get in your pod there. You'd hope for a really good pod. Oh, no, you'd know because the scene (laughs) connected and we all had our little clicks and stuff. And so you pile in with your own clicks. I remember Destiny's Child had launch parties at Porchester Hall in Bayswater. The parties in that era were so opulent and extravagant. It was mind-blowing. Were you mentioning Usher as well? Yeah. I mean, Usher... I mean, God, there are so many Usher parties. I mean, (laughs) literally so many. He loved a party. And you would be in the party dancing with him, hanging out. Because I think London has a vibe where we don't fangirl or fanboy people where I you know subterranean yeah. nightclub or Hanover Grand and Hanover Square if Spike Lee or Eminem are dancing next to you you would basically look at your friends like oh can you see Spike Lee behind me look but you would never look at them or try and take a picture or a selfie yeah. like I think it's very different now you know back then we would literally be dancing next to Prince and Denzel Washington and I'd be gesturing to my girls going Look at me. <laughs> then you would never ever let them know you'd spotted them. And yeah. I and I love that about London. We're kind of, you know, we're cool. Yeah, I totally agree. I wonder if phone culture has prohibited that a bit because everyone's capturing everything now and it probably does make artists feel a bit more self-conscious. Oh, of course. Of course it does. You know, the minute you know that you could be captured doing something and it could be spun into a wild story, you're not gonna behave as you would have normally. So I think the one thing that we've lost today is freedom, freedom to be ourselves and behave the way we truly want to. You know, I had birthday parties every year. I mean, every single year I had a birthday party and everyone in the industry would know it was my party. All the artists would turn up. My favourite one was in uh, right next door to the Royal Albert Hall, actually, in Kensington Gore. And I had a party and it just happened to be across a weekend when loads of artists were in town. So I had Joe, one of my favourite R&B artists, 
Usher, one of my favourite R&B artists, Lennox Lewis, all types of people just in my party. And I had Usher. Yeah, and one of my best friends was Selena from The Honeys and she was obsessed with Usher and they were dancing and there was Cristal being ordered and it was just wild. You just wouldn't get that nowadays because there'd be so many highly strong, concerned PR people and, you know, it just just wouldn't happen anymore. So, yeah, yeah, we live the good times. (laughs) Back to career and MTV. Oh, yes. <laughs> Back we to work. We've done parties for way too long. <laughs> Back to work. Um, so when you made the transition from presenting and being in front of the camera to, or, or was it a transition or was it like you were doing both for quite a bit, but then obviously you, you went into your role in head of base and production? So what I really found was when I was presenting MTV News, my producers would be writing my words and my script for me. Uh And I would read the words and script and think, oh my God, that's not how I talk. That's not really the language I would use. Sometimes it would seem a bit cringy. So to give you an example, I remember once introducing Mary J. Blige and they wrote in my script, so if hip hop R&B is the thing that really floats your boat, let's get a load of this. You know, and it was just like, I just wouldn't say that. And I <laughs> would appreciate that. Yeah. So I started saying to the producers, would you mind sending me your scripts in advance? And I'll just tweak them so it's said in my own tone and style. Yeah. So I know that our audience will respect it. So eventually I was writing more of my own scripts, which then made my job title go from MTV News presenter to MTV News presenter producer. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I realized that actually the producer holds a lot of the power. The presenter gets lots of fame and lots of free stuff sent to them. But the moment a younger, prettier version turns up and they turn up every couple of weeks, <laughs> out the job so it's about what can I add value to myself by doing so I started producing all my stuff and then the producer has lots of power because they're working with a talent department in who they get in so I started liking being more of a producer than I was a presenter Mm. you know I quickly learned that being a presenter was quite fickle and being a producer you just held the cards you could take your content where you wanted to if I suddenly decided that I wanted to cover the new Jay-Z tour I could put in a pitch for that I couldn't do that as a presenter yeah so I started presenting and producing eventually a couple of years down the line I was the head of my department for MTV News Then I became the head of department for broader news, international MTV departments. And then there was a mass redundancy happening all across MTV. And most companies, when there are mass redundancies, they will score each staff member to each job. And so for a very, very long time, one of my bosses, Richard Godfrey, had been saying to me, why don't you look to work at MTV Base? And I never wanted to because MTV Base lived under the MTV UK umbrella and MTV UK had no money or budget. And I'd been used to being a part of MTV News International that had loads of money and I was (laughs) flying around the world. So I didn't want to be a part of MTV Base. But suddenly the restructure and the redundancies happened and I scored highest under hip-hop and R&B for production and content. So I was told that I was doing that job and it was mandatory. So it's basically you're doing this job or you're redundant. Yeah. But it ended up being brilliant because all the things that I had always been saying to the team who had been there before me, like, why aren't you using the UK black music artists? You know, and they'd say things to me like, oh, they don't rate very well jazz or market research tells us that the audience don't like them. And I'd be really frustrated because every night I'd be out at these places where there was a whole UK black music scene and there was black musicians doing great things with thousands of audience members. And I kept thinking, how... Are they saying this at the MTV headquarters 
but I'm witnessing this on the street. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And so I guess in the in a way, it was like the beginning of me being quite strategic in the way I thought and where MTV could go mm-hmm. and where British black music specifically could win. And what I'd been seeing was... Americans were really proud of their different teams, whether it was East Coast, West Coast, down South, Miami, Atlanta. They really had this kind of whoa team spirit. And then I'd come back to the UK and I'd think, we don't have that. So what I started doing with some of my MTV base staff members was, at the time, I can't remember all the artists that were coming out, but I specifically remember examples around Tiny Temper, Bashy and Estelle (laughs) and Chipmunk at the time. Before he was Chip. Before he was Chip. Um, yeah. And, and I remember specifically all these people had music coming out. And I remember thinking, how are we going to get them out there? Because remember, I had something to prove. I yeah. was now running MTV Bass and I wanted to prove to my news international people that it wasn't just about the pop stars and British black music could do it as well. And I had to figure out a way of how this was going to happen. So I started bringing together all the different people in the industry that I had started having these conversations offline with. So to give you an example, friends like Taponaswa Mavunga, who is one of the heads of press at Sony in Columbia, who back then was at Warner. She and I had often discussed how healthy the UK black music scene was, but it didn't get its due and its respect and the credit it deserved. Other people in the group, like Paula Lucktung, who was running Adidas's celebrity clothing at the time, people like Noel Clark, the actor, director and producer of all the Brotherhood and Kid Adulthood movies. So we had this click and it started off with about 30 of us and eventually ended up being about 15 of us. But we were all tastemakers coming up at the same time in our different companies, whether those companies were Adidas or Nike or Choice FM or Kiss FM or Radio One or record labels or artists. We were all starting to become tastemakers and influencers ourselves. So I got everyone together for dinner. We'd have a monthly dinner and I'd say to them, what can we do? Like, who are you working on? So one of my pals at the record label would say, I'm working on Estelle's new album. How can we get it out there? She's not getting played by Radio One. How can we force them to do it? So we started strategically making brands look up and take notice of British black music artists. One of the ways that we did it, so I'll give you, I'll stay on the Estelle example. At the time, at the time, one of her albums was not going to be played by Radio One Mm -hmm. because they said her previous album hadn't done very well. And so we said, how can we force their hand in this? So I was writing a column at the Voice newspaper. I had a slot on Choice FM on a Friday afternoon and I was running MTV Bases production. So I made sure that all the areas that I was working in were covering Estelle. Then my friends who worked at Adidas would basically put Estelle on the big Adidas adverts on the buses and on the billboards on the tube. So you were seeing Estelle everywhere. Noel Clark would put Estelle on the soundtrack for his films. My other friend would put Estelle on the lineup for the live festivals. So every month we would just go, which two or three artists need our help? And at the same time, Twitter was starting. And I remember personally putting in calls and emails to Bashy and Tiny and everybody else's teams and Mm -hmm. basically saying, look, Bashy's album's out. Let everyone support it. And let's use the hashtag Team UK. So we would put Team UK because I was trying to reflect and mirror what the Americans were doing with West Coast, East Coast, Miami. And so I was like, well, we can't be... Back your country. Yeah, back your country. But we couldn't be like... 
tooting and eeling and stuff. <laughs> it wasn't going to be big enough, right? So we were hashtag Team UK. And every time one of the Black British music artists would have stuff out, I would write a really long email. I would put loads of examples of tweets. I would put all the right hashtags and handles. And I would send it out to the teams and I'd say, look, if you can't think of your own tweet to support Bashy or Chipmunk or Estelle, here are examples below. Feel free to tweak them, write them in your own style or whatever. And when it comes to your album coming out, we'll all do the same for you. So we're now utilizing everyone's fan bases. Mm -hmm. So it's not little pockets of fan bases working against each other competitively. It's fan bases that are now galvanizing as one big movement. And when you see Team UK and everyone doing it, it creates a buzz. And having been at TV companies where I knew that they get the voice newspaper every week and they see what street culture's talking about. I knew that as soon as people started seeing everybody talking about Tiny, Estelle, Chip, whoever it was, Tinchy was massive at the time. Yeah. I knew that everyone would jump on board. And so basically we did that for years and years and years. And do you know what? This group of ours still exists. We're like a family now. And we still pass talent and artists and work each other's way. Like it's the best thing ever so one top tip I would give young people coming up in the industry is surround yourself with like-minded people and then work together as a movement to raise your game yeah it's just so interesting that almost has become the model now I think to work brands and you know hip-hop names like Steve Stout in America had started doing this whole branding marketing thing around hip-hop he was the one who started And Skepta and um, Young Ads from D-Block and and Chip have just done that work together as a three. And I think that's super nice. And maybe as women, we need a bit more of that. Like I'm trying to think, I know in the States, obviously you've got the Beyonce and Meg Thee Stallion have just collaborated and Doja Cat and Nicki Minaj. And I saw a stat that said for the first time, there were, I think, five BAME women in the top two. That's amazing. I mean, women of colour and specifically black women when it comes to the black music industry have had their voices heard like never before this last last decade. Because when I was coming up, you know, even when I've been asked to do media training for new artists, and I still do that lots, yeah. record labels always give me guys. There's always males that I'm training to have a voice in media and never females. So when I do Channel 4 news reports, for example, on arts and culture, If you look at my list on Channel 4, the whole list is practically men because record labels are comfortable with their male talents talking, but not with their female artists. And I always say, you know, for example, I wanted to do Steph London ages ago and I kept bugging her team and they kept saying to me, oh no, oh no, you know, no, we don't need it or or she might say something that we're not happy with. And I think, wow, your male artist might say something you're not happy with, but you're willing to media train them. And I even offered to media train females for free so that I could do Channel 4 News reports with them. But record labels just don't want to give women a voice. The thinking is that female artists will look pretty on a red carpet and they Mm. will get the attention anyway, whereas men are given a voice, which is just so sexist and ridiculous. Now It's it's so backwards. It obviously is not true. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't work. But this is why social media is brilliant. You know, with Mm. social media, all the female artists can say anything they want, when they want. They can put to right wrongs, any rumours. You know, in the past, rumours would come out about females in the music industry and they just didn't have a chance of sharing their own version of any story and, and owning their own narrative. 
You've seen the progress and journey of so many artists and obviously you're involved with training yourself. And I wanted to ask about certain traits or certain things that you've seen that have allowed people to have continued success in the industry or success even in the first place because it's so competitive. Yeah, it's interesting. My my friends and I have this conversation all the time about what makes an artist successful and what doesn't. Mm. And I've interviewed people now for 25 years. So I've seen artists come and go, come and go. I've seen people spend millions on a new artist that didn't work. And, and I can see why. I could literally write the handbook on why some are successful and why some are not. But just to give you a couple of minutes I worth read of that book knowledge, in case you do. <laughs> yeah, no, genuinely. So the artists that work are the ones who single-handedly take every opportunity and are good and easy to work with. So the best artists that are famous and rich and successful aren't always the ones who have got the most talent. In fact, some of the most talented people never make it because there's something else holding them back. So the things holding them back tend to be a lack of manners, a lack of responsibility and professionalism, turning up on time, being well-mannered, you know, being in the moment. You know, I in my MTV days, I would book studios in our Camden building for artists to do live sessions and sets. And that would cost thousands. You know, you've got camera crew, sound, tech, gallery engineers, and some artists just wouldn't turn up. They'd say they forgot, or it was on the wrong day, or they overslept. And I think, wow, you are literally one of the best lyricists in this country and I would never work with you again. So they've burned their bridges early or in today's era, they don't think about what their social media stance is or what their attitude's like. You know, 50 Cent used to say to me in interviews, I am who I am wherever you see me, even Mm -hmm. when you're not watching me. If we were on lockdown, for example, 50 Cent isn't the guy that would be slobbing out. 50 Mm -hmm. Cent is the guy who would be going, right, how can I make the most of lockdown? Mm -hmm. So it's making the most of every opportunity. The ones that succeed always keep themselves relevant by keeping up the music, making sure they surround themselves with good teams. I've seen incredible rappers and, and singers not make it successful because they've just got bad people in their team. Mm -hmm. So the team can't organize their schedule. They move in unprofessional ways. They do things that might be illegal. You know, I've seen, I've seen it all basically. All you need is good people around you, a strategy, confidence, trust, and resilience, I would say Mm -hmm. is the most important thing. Artists are Making music from places of pain often, from challenging places, whether it's lost love, lost lives, challenging dysfunctional upbringings. Most artists are coming from a place of pain. So you need to surround yourself with great people in your team that you trust. And you need to be resilient because you can have a number one and then no one can hear of you again for five to six years. How are you going to stay resilient? By resilient, we mean you're going to have knockbacks. There's going to be times when people come at you. There's going to be times you don't win awards and you don't always make the short list when people say the top 10 best singers or rappers. Can you keep going? Can you, can you lock the music and the chatter out and just keep focused with some tunnel vision? Mm. Because that's what artists lack when it comes to keeping up. Often the most successful, famous names that I've worked with aren't the best talents they are the ones that have been resilient when Kylie Minogue first came out I'll never forget it people would ridicule her there was this little pop star who had had come from Neighbours and Home and Away or wherever it was the Australian soap that she was in and people would literally take the mickey out of her all day long 
The press used to ridicule her. People in the industry didn't take her seriously. But she was resilient. She kept on keeping on. She kept making the tunes. Then came that big break moment where she wore the gold hot pants for spinning around. And suddenly she was iconic in the same way that Rihanna became iconic after chopping her hair into that asymmetrical bob for Umbrella. So it's about resilience. Keep it up, keep it up, and you will get there. But it's the people who make one amazing album and go, oh, no one supported me. No one credits me. Mm. No one respects me. And then they fall off and then they're gone. Yeah. But I think it's so hard because so many people look ahead and see other people being celebrated and they want that. But it's like, that's not a continued thing. You never get that forever. So I think... It's not guaranteed. You know, people come from a place of, they expect to be praised all the time. You know, great people don't expect the praise. Just do you and the praise will come. I often say to musicians when we're media training, after I've done all the hard skill stuff, I will ask musicians why they really want to be a musician. Mm. And I say to them, be honest, is it about fame or is it that you love music? And they'll always start off by saying it's because I love music. And I'll go and I'll ask a set of questions that then lead them down to, oh, it's because I want to be famous, not because I love music. Mm. Because it's quite obvious. If you wanted to make music because you love music, there are millions of other industries you can work in. You could write jingles for radio. You could write music for theatres. You could work in theatres in the West End stage. Yeah. There, there are so many jobs in music, if you love music, mm-hmm. that you would do. But it's because you want the fame that you go down that road. And if you want the fame, you've got to be resilient. You've got to be professional. You've got to turn up on time. You've got to, you know, Will Smith, when I interview him, he will go around the whole room like Beyonce and they will shake hands and thank my sound man, my cameraman, my producer. They'll remember people's names. They make people feel good. Mm. You know, new artists often come through and they'll be rude or late or unpunctual, you know, your reputation precedes you and people will stop working with you in a heartbeat if you're difficult. Sort of flitting back to work and experiences you've had, I wanted to know uh, what were the moments that felt really big. And I suppose attached to that, the people that you've met, so maybe it's a Mariah or maybe it's a Beyonce, but people who you have felt kind of special, like they maybe have a different presence. All the big names that have been around for decades have a special presence around them. Like I remember even, you know, doing MTV film interviews with people like Jackie Chan or Will Smith or Martin Lawrence or Chris Tucker, they've got an aura of buzz and electricity around them. Someone like Mariah, for example, when I first met her, I'd heard all the diva stories. I wouldn't have interviewed anyone like her because my boss would send me, you know, in our group of six people at MTV News, I was the hip hop R&B girl. Mariah would have normally been done by my boss because he did Janet Jackson and Whitney and stuff like that. And this was a day that he couldn't make it. I can't remember why he couldn't, but he said to me, you're going to Italy, you're going to Capri, you're going to do an MTV News interview with Mariah Carey. And I remember going, no, I'm not. That's not my bag. Like, I don't want to do that. And he was like, no, you've got to go anyway. After lots of pushing and shoving, I was (laughs) sent off to Capri. (laughs) And I remember sitting in the hotel lobby and saying to the concierge, sorry, can I please go on your computer? I've got to research Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey on the hotel computer because I barely knew anything about her. I knew that she'd done fantasy and honey and anything 
connected with, you know, her remixes with Bone Thugs and Harmony and stuff I knew about, but everything else I really didn't. But she was a real eye-opener because in the flesh, she was funny. She knew her hip-hop inside out. Mm. We both had such a giggle. We had very similar personalities. It was like speaking to one of my girlfriends with the same kind of banter and, and you know, eye-opening little asides that we both do yeah. and she said to me after the interview oh my god you must leave your number I'll call you and I remember saying to her yeah you'll call me <laughs> you I mean, my back then I had no filter so anything I was thinking would come out of my mouth so when I when she said I'm gonna call you and I went yeah you're gonna call me all right then and, she just <laughs> yeah. and, and you know we grew a friendship from there people like um Beyonce and Destiny's Child. When I first used to go on tour with Destiny's Child and they were a brand new group and no one had heard of them, there were loads of young female R&B groups coming out at the time. And there were loads of female groups who were all much more famous than Destiny's Mm -hmm. Child. You know, we had Escape and On Vogue and SWV. And all I remember from Destiny's Child is they had great hooks, they had great music, and that wouldn't have been enough. But they had Beyonce leading them. And when it came to doing any television on any schedule, tours around Europe, in Paris, late at night after shows had happened, if I got my camera out for MTV News, because I was a self-shooter and I sent all my footage back remotely, if I got my camera out and the other group members said, oh, Jazz, can we do it tomorrow? We're really tired. Beyonce would go, no, come on, ladies, we're doing it now. This is on the schedule. Let's do it. Come on, let's cheer ourselves up. Come on, everyone, hype, 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 hype. And so she was always the one that knew... If there was a schedule, she had to do her schedule and she understood that I had to do mine. So she knew that MTV News needed something every day that we had to do. Had she been like the other group members and just gone, oh, shall we not bother? It would have been just like any other girl group. Mm. But you can see she had a vision. You know, she used to say to me, my dad makes me run around the block singing Destiny's Child songs because I have to do it without being out of breath. Mm -hmm. And I used to film her doing that. And now when she's on stage and she's singing and dancing and there's not one bit of breathlessness, (sighs) you know why? Because she had an early, you know, incubation period where she was being nurtured to be one of the greatest music stars we've ever seen. Mm. Yeah. And I remember Chris Brown saying that he was like following, basically trying to replicate that model with some artists that he was working with, like putting them on a treadmill and getting them to sing on a treadmill. Yeah. Either, it's like 50 Cent said, you see, we keep coming back to the theme here, Lexi. When yeah. 50 Cent said, you are who you are when no one's watching you. I mean, he didn't come up with that quote originally, but that's mm. what he would always say. That's what people like Beyonce are about. That's what the Mariah is about. Who are you when no one's watching? Are you the same person? Are you authentic? Yeah, consistency. I remember reading a quote a while ago that much the same tune that said, you know, if somebody could only see what you were doing and couldn't see inside your head, would they know what you wanted to achieve? And if, yeah, they, yeah. if they wouldn't, then you're probably not going to achieve it. Exactly. It's like when we started going on lockdown, people started tweeting and Facebook messaging me going, oh my God, are you going to be all right? Because you're always out and you're out every night somewhere. And how are you going to cope with lockdown? <laughs> and, and that wasn't my friends. That was just strangers. And it goes yeah. to show that people who don't know you just don't get it. Like, right. All I kept thinking was, Jesus, this is an opportunity to feel like you're on your own retreat. There are people who pay thousands to go to Ibiza and sit in a silent room in a silent retreat for weeks because they need their peace of mind like I will spin everything into going how can I make this work for myself because as 50 said it's about who you are when no one is watching (laughs) 
So tell me a bit about the work you're doing now with the Media Trust, not to kind of skip like 15 years or <laughs> however, um, obviously you've done so much, but yeah, I'm really interested in the work you're doing now. Yeah. So when I was at MTV and at Channel 4, and, I, and I'm still connected to those companies, every year I go back and I produce at the MTV Awards and I make um, arts content for Channel 4 News. There'd always be these diversity schemes and I was on every diversity committee and council and every idea to bring more diverse people to the board. And I could see where people were going wrong, but because I was never a part of HR, they obviously wouldn't take all of my ideas seriously. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot that I did to bring in more diversity at MTV. I'd been doing that for years anyway, off the record. And then I was at the BBC in children's development thinking of new um, music shows with Mark Cooper, the legend. And I saw something on the BBC intranet and it was an advert from Media Trust, who are an organisation that sit at the crossroads of all the big media broadcasters and advertising companies. And it's where they meet communities, charities and young people. And the advert said, do you think you can do diversity in television better than us for young people? And I remember rolling my eyes and going, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, my friend, and my friend who sat at the next desk said to me, well, go on then, why don't you go for the job? And I went, oh, I don't really want it. But you know what? I might just go and, I might just go and tell them what they yeah. should be doing. So I literally I'll did give that. my opinion. So I, yeah, I'll give them my opinion and that'll be it. <laughs> Waiting for this interview. I mean, I was very polite and stuff, but I did tell them the real, real and what I thought. And then the same afternoon, they called me back and said, we'd like to offer you the job. And so basically, I've been at Media Trust for nine years now. I, I always tend to stay at places for a long time. I know it's not very trendy in the current climate, but... I like to get my teeth stuck into a brand and really see what we can do with it and, and where we can take it. And at the time, Media Trust had not been about celebrity or partnering with different big celeb names. And I remember celebrity was like a bad word. And I used to say to them, look, we can do this. So in a nutshell, I created a program back then called London 360, which basically took 120 young Londoners across a year. And we would train them for six months intensely. And we train them in everything from shooting, editing, off common compliance rules, music for television. Basically, it was in order to make them a one man or one woman team mm -hmm. to do everything themselves in one person that I'd always had a team of six or seven people doing. So when I used to go out on a shoot, there'd be the TV producer, the presenter, the sound man, the cameraman, the talent person. You could have five to seven people on a shoot. Now, every young person I train can go out and do that by themselves, mm -hmm. which means that they are really valuable to TV production companies. So many of them now are all over the industry, both at news channels and, you know, at Radio One and at Channel 4 News and at Channel 5 programming. They are all able to shoot and edit. They can cast, they can crew, they can script everything. That is invaluable to people yeah. who are older, who need digitally minded young talent. Mm -hmm. So at Media Trust, my team and I train young people all across the country. There is a plethora of programs. Some are mentoring programs that do one-to-one -one mentoring with new young people that want to get into television. Some are day programs and courses for Vlog Star Challenge. So, for example, everyone wants to be a YouTube star now. Yeah. We teach young people how to vlog and, and use YouTube in a positive way. It means that these young people who come from diverse and challenging backgrounds end up going on to do all this incredible work across the industry. And we've got a whole network and a movement out there that give each other jobs and roles. Yeah. So it's a really lovely cyclical, you know, blueprint. 
So nice. And as you say, that community, they can then keep supporting each other as they go through their careers. I think I probably have time to ask you one more question, even though I could probably talk to you for hours, (laughs) but I'm conscious of your time. (laughs) Um, So the final question I wanted to ask you, and it's definitely been exaggerated by lockdown, but really it's been happening for, it's felt definitely to me like it's been happening for a long time and a lot of people I know. There's been closure of a lot of venues throughout London and there seems to be a kind of scaling back of the live music scene maybe or more challenges in that facing. And obviously a lot of people are then turning to doing things online. And I guess my fear, and I don't know if it's rational or not, is that online, you know, if, you, if you've already got a huge audience, then great, then you can go out to a, a huge audience. If you've got a backing of a lot of money, then great, you can put media behind things. But um, I guess I'm conscious of the impact that that will actually have on the ability to break artists and people who are up and coming, particularly for urban and youth and that culture. I just wanted to get your opinion on it and see whether you think it's a uh, whether you think the live music scene is in a different place to where it was and what impact you think that might have? Lexi, I think every few years, things change in the music industry that make people think it's all doom and gloom and it's the end, but things end up happening from a place of creativity that only young, new digital creatives can have. Mm. So I remember you know, I've been in this in the industry for two decades and I see things, you know, when MP3s took over from CDs and then streaming started and everyone was, oh, woe is me and it's the end of the music <laughs> industry and live as we know it. And it never is. People will think of new creative ways to do this and lockdown has shown just how incredible that is. So as soon as lockdown started, a week into it, I had musicians sending out links saying, And and these are not famous musicians. These are people who are up and coming, but they're starting to make money by offering greeting card services. So for £5, £10 or £20, people are offering to sing greetings or rap greetings for your birthday, your wedding, your anniversary. So that's a creative way. You know, we've seen how young black music fans like the No Signal radio team are putting together music clashes every night and so every night on Twitter in lockdown things have been trending all over the world so no signal radio for those who don't know are a group of young creatives who have put together a digital radio station they use Twitter to get people to vote for their favorite music and every night they've been doing NS which stands for no signal NS 10 v 10 and that basically means no signal 10 versus 10 and every night they put different people together so they've had just sound clashes and everyone uses Twitter to vote for their favorite person in each round. And in recent weeks, they have had over a hundred global countries join. So, you know, lockdown is going to be good for a lot of people. All new trends come from black music and that black culture. So, you know, I'm just a guest in their house and I thank them every day for having me there. (laughs) Jasmine, thank you so much for sharing all of your experiences with us and the audience. So, so grateful. What's your handle on Twitter? Where can people find and follow you and and engage? My handle on Twitter is my name, Jasmine Dottiwala, spelt exactly the way it's said. 
I am on Instagram too, but I'm really on Instagram. I only got that because my friend Tappy kept saying, oh, we want to tag you on Insta. Just make an Instagram <laughs> account so we can tag you. So when You've I got some great throwback shots on there. So I would still recommend <laughs> to people to, to... Okay, yes. I mean, it's true. If there's, I mean, I can't sing, I can't rap, but if there's one thing I definitely win the prize for, it's throwback Thursday pictures. No one <laughs> throwback Thursdays are as good as mine if you are a black music lover. <laughs> definitely true thanks everyone for listening and we will see you next week have a great oh, day. thanks for having me <laughs> bye what up let's Eyes 